right? Oh my, you have a Salvador Dali clock in your bathroom. Oh yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, look at that. Why? Does it creep you out? <laughs> you know, clock's supposed to be symmetrical and that's like melted. This is Mississippi Story. A podcast celebrating tall tales and small tales of the South. I'm your host, Bryn Corbello. Thanks for stopping in, y'all. Well, today I have with me as my special narrator, storyteller, and co-host, guest, Curtis Everett. How are you today? Doing well. Well, yay! That's better than not doing well. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that you could come join the podcast. We're in our first season. It's very exciting. A lot of new things on the horizon. You're welcome. (laughs) So, you were telling me a little off the air that um, you had a very exciting time. So, the first 10 years of my life were spent in Alaska. And so, I thought that'd be interesting. You had asked for storytellers on your podcast. And so, you know, I'm in the business of making movies and I'm always making stuff up. And What's more interesting, though, than something, a story that's actually true? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of people want to go to Alaska, but they haven't been yet, you know. And so there's, I, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about Alaska a little bit. Oh, yeah. Tell me all about it. Okay, so I grew up in Eagle River, Alaska, which was about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes away from Anchorage. So my parents were, they were both teachers. A lot of people asked me if they were in the military. They were not. But they were teachers, and so I uh, lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And, um, you know, I can remember, you know, all the snow and, you know, how deep it got, how cold it got. And there's a lot of myths people think about Alaska. Um, so I did not live in an igloo, I lived in a house. <laughs> I uh, did not have a pet saber toothed tiger. It was not half a year of darkness and half a year of light. It was. What, what happens is during certain seasons of the year, especially the winter, it'll get dark for, you know, you probably only get about two to three hours worth of night, or sorry, daytime in the winter. And then, you know, there's other times of the year when you're only going to get like um, two or three hours of darkness. So, um, you know, it's not quite like a 50-50 thing. There are certain parts of Alaska where you don't get any daylight or you don't get any um, nighttime, you know, but that's further north toward the uh, North Pole, but we lived, you know, a little bit south, so we would always get one or the other, but yeah, in the in the wintertime, luckily I was not as an adult up there in Alaska because some people will get what is called seasonal, you know, affective disorder, kind of mm-hmm. a depression from not having that sunlight, and so they'll have to take you know, vitamin C supplements, and they'll have to have sun lamps in their house, but, you know, it didn't really ever bother me, because, you know, I, I was mm-hmm. a kid, so, you know, mm-hmm. bundle of happiness, but. Yeah, I just, like, collected padded jackets. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> now you're happy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, a lot of people don't know, so I, I, you know, you wear your clothes, you know, obviously in Alaska, but there are certain clothing items that some people have never even heard of. So, uh, snow pants, you know, we had snow pants. They're like giant overalls. You know, you step into them that you wear them on the outside of your pants, 
those are mainly for kids, you know, because kids love to roll around in the snow and things like that. But mm -hmm. so everybody had these black, you know, snow pants. And what's cool is we had Walmart up there. So, you know, in different areas of the United States, different regions, you have different items that are available at Walmart. So in Walmart in Alaska, you know, when it comes to be wintertime, they break out like the snow sleds and the skis and stuff like that. Obviously in Mississippi, there's no need for that because it's a completely different climate. Oh, yeah. But I just thought that was always interesting how, um, you know, the same company would sell different things in different states. But um, anyway, so I, for the first uh, K through three, I went to the same school that my mom and dad taught at and my uncle. So, you know, I had my mom, my dad, and my uncle at the same school. And what was interesting is anytime I got in trouble, they would know before, like, you know, the day was up, like before I went home, you know, mm -hmm. because there would be like rumors throughout the school. So I would get <laughs> absolutely grilled and toasted, you know, before the day was even up, like I would get punished. So my uncle was the gym teacher, you know, he would make me do like, you know, calisthenics and stuff and, you know, you know, as punishment. To tell them no fair. There's more of you and less of me. I know, and right. I'm short. But uh, <laughs> from my oh, parents cool. and my grandma does too. So they're all within like a five minute drive of each other. And then here's me, you know, the outlier at 45 minutes or so in the country. Yeah. But um, well, And now you have so much time. Um, so everybody listening, he's being modest. But this is the head honcho of Saint Studios. So... I know you've got so many projects coming up. You always do. Uh, yeah, we're uh, working this weekend. So um, I've been filming on these two different films. So we on the 11th, we shot this movie called Red Bluff, 11th of October. Uh, we shot this movie called Red Bluff at Red Bluff in Foxworth, Mississippi. So we went out there and uh, we spent the day out there filming and filming and filming. And um, but what we discovered when we went out there is that the terrain was not as conducive for travel as we thought it would be. So there was a lot of, um, we couldn't drag our wagon, you know, I have a production yeah. wagon and so we couldn't drag that through there. So we had to keep kind of like cut back on what we were going to shoot there and, you know, had to redesign mm -hmm. where scenes were going to take place. But we ended mm -hmm. up filming out there and it was a lot of fun, but you know, I've been slowly adding to that movie and, you know, to kind of make up for some of the scenes that we lost during the transition of locations and then yeah. October 16th through the 18th, I did the main filming weekend on this movie called Rest Area, which is a slasher film. Originally, this project started as a Friday the 13th fan film, but when I went to eBay to buy a hockey mask, they really wanted a lot more for a used hockey mask than I wanted to pay, you know, <laughs> and I was trying to get like a different kind of looking hockey mask so people aren't like, hey, that's, you know, the Jason mask or whatever, but... Yeah. I'm talking some of those hockey masks on there would go for like $150, $200, you know, for like yeah. a used hockey mask. And so yeah, I decided to change the mask. We just changed the mask. And so I changed it at once. I got one thing. And then the part of the killer got recast. And the new killer was like, well, I want a little bit more, you know, my face showing or like, you know, people to tell that it's me. And so I bought two different masks at Walmart. And I was like, okay, in the group, which one's scarier? And so I showed them both masks. And everybody in the group, some people said this one's scarier, and someone said this one's scarier. So I said, you know what? Cut the mask in half, combined them. So took two masks, made it into one mask, and that's what we use for the movie. But we're filming the rest of that movie this weekend, and hopefully we'll get done with Rest Area and Red Bluff on the same day, and it should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It sounds like such a, you know, it's going to be a good time, especially just 
powering through and doing so much creative work. I don't know how you had time to come visit me. Oh, uh, well, uh, you know, <laughs> scale, like I used to work a, uh, you know, Monday through Friday, 10 to six every day job. And then, I, you know, I was like, no, I can't do this anymore. And, um, you know, I, I wait or drive for fun sometimes, but my schedule is generally pretty flexible. So during the week I have time to do stuff and get caught up on sleep and other things. So Yeah. Well, amazing. Well, hooray. Thank you for coming today, telling a little bit about Saint Studios and um, some of your time in Alaska before you moved to Mississippi and became such a prominent filmmaker in our area. Um, how many uh, movies have you made, do you think? It's been a lot. Well, I've been making movies since 2004. Since yeah. 2007, my company has made over 50 feature-length films. So these those are films that exceed 45 minutes in length. And so, uh, yeah, we just we do it for fun. The community theater of independent film, and we like to get new people involved all the time. You know, this is not an exclusive club. It's pretty easy to get into, so... Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Well, it's so good to have you. And then I have you reading a story by a man named Nicholas Smith, who's also a native of Mississippi. And that's coming right up. All right. This short story is called Hard Times, and it's written by Nicholas Smith. The boy sat on the porch while his mother screamed from the inside of the house. He bent down and lifted his marbles from the dust of the earth and set them on the porch where they rolled on the uneven boards. His sister sat in the grass and played with her doll, a stitched child with a painted face, the features smeared from countless hours of the child's handling. His mother screamed again and he got off the porch and sat down next to his sister and rolled the marbles around in his hands. Is mama sick? his sister said. Yeah, he said. Is it her tummy? she said. Maybe. He turned and looked at the grandmother who was shelling peas into a bucket from her rocking chair on the porch. Why is Mama hollering? His grandmother didn't look up from her shelling, her gnarled fingers working in ancient practice motions, and said, It's the curse. The boy turned to his sister. She said it's the curse. His sister's head cocked to the side, her pigtails fluttering in the breeze. What's the curse? I don't know. A low cry came from the woods. It rose to a shrill pitch and died off. The boy stood up and put the marbles in the bib of his overalls. Was that Tina? His grandmother said. Maybe, the boy said. Go check on her. I'll watch your sister. The boy walked across the field, the Mississippi heat baking into his shoulders and neck, and stepped through the potato patch and climbed over the fence and headed for the tree line. He stomped his way through the woods, watching for any copperheads that might have been hiding in the soggy leaves that squelched under his feet. Birds twittered all around him as he went towards the moaning coming from just up ahead. He reached a clearing and saw where the ground was sunk into a ditch. He eased over to the ditch, watching for any loose earth, and looked in. There below in the pit lay Tina. The heifer was lying on her side in the bog, her head lifting from time to time, then dropping back into the muck with a slap. The boy looked over and saw where she had stepped on unsteady land and fallen in. He looked at Tina again and saw that her front legs were bent the wrong way. White bones stuck through one of them, and his first thought was of a broken candy cane. Tina tried to move, but bellowed every time she tried to adjust her broken legs. You've got to hold still, the boy said. It'll be okay. 
He eased toward the ditch and crouched and slid down on his heels, one hand in the mud to maintain his balance. He met Tina in the pit and held her shoulder and tried to shift her upright. She groaned and swung her head, knocking him into the pulpy bed. He coughed and got up and tried again, but couldn't move her. I can't do it, he said. I'll go get Daddy. He'll know how to help you. Just hold on. The boy climbed out of the ditch and headed back through the woods toward home. He reached the field and shielded his eyes from the sun and saw the doctor's Model T parked by the house. He knew the doctor only left hat box if something was really wrong. He hurried home. His father and doctor were walking out of sight behind the house when the boy reached the porch. He paused to catch his breath. You find Tina, boy? His grandmother said. Yes, and she done fell in the ditch. She all right? No, ma'am, she ain't. Better go tell your daddy. The boy went around the side of the house and saw the moving shadows of the doctor and his father from around the corner. He caught up but stopped before they could see him. He heard them talking. These things happen, Jim, the doctor said. The boy rounded the corner. The doctor and his father turned to look at him. Something was wrong with his father's eyes. Something happened to Mama, the boy said. His head rocked to the side when his father's fist slammed into his jaw. He hit the dirt, then his father was on him, slapping him. Where were you, his father said. I told you to watch your sister. The boy tried to fend off the blows. It was Tina, he said, crying. She fell in the ditch and can't get out. His father stopped hitting him and stood there, heaving. The boy sniveled and got to his feet. The doctor put a hand on the father's shoulder. I'll be back in a few days. It should be over by then. The boy's father nodded and wiped his eyes. She wasn't ready. Neither of us was. The boy ran from his father and went into the house. Mama, he said, but there was no answer. He ran into his mother's room. She was lying in her bed, the mattress sheets and her gown soaked in sweat and blood. The boy stood by her bedside. Her face was pale and glistened in the faint glow of the evening. Mama? The boy said again. His mother's eyes fluttered open, and she looked over at him. She smiled, but not in her usual way. Hey, baby, she said, her voice barely above a whisper. His father came into the room, still sniffling, and went into the closet and came out with his rifle. He left before anything could be said. What is he doing? The boy's mother said. Tina fell and got hurt, the boy said. Did you find her? Yes, ma'am. Is your sister okay? Yes, ma'am, she's with Grandma. The boy looked at the bloodstains on the bed. Are you sick, Mama? His mother closed her eyes and opened them again. Her eyes were like his father's had been. There was a stirring coming from one of the dresser drawers. The boy turned. Did you get rats in your dresser, Mama? Them's not rats, his mother said. Them's your brothers. The boy went over to the dresser, and his mother began to cry. There will be new mercies in the morning, she said. The boy opened the drawer and only stood there in the silence, and his mother's grief as the report of his father's rifle sounded in the distance. Homecoming by Nicholas Smith Hanson sat in the back seat of the car and looked at the driver's eyes in the rear view mirror. They were fixed on the road ahead. Hanson leaned back and looked behind him as the Jackson Municipal Airport receded into the distance. No family to pick you up, the driver said. Hanson turned back around. I want to surprise them. The driver nodded. That's nice. 
I'm sure they'll be glad to see you. How was it? How was what? You know, Vietnam. That's where he came from, right? Oh, yeah. He glanced down at the silver star and purple heart on his uniform, but didn't say anything right away. You don't got to talk if you don't want to. It's not that. I'm just trying to get my thoughts together. I got it, man. You say what you want to say when you're ready, or don't. Ain't my business, just trying to break the ice a little. I appreciate it, Hanson said. He wanted to talk, but he couldn't find the words. All he saw was the image of a boy with his legs gone. He lay in the middle of a crater created by a landmine he had triggered. The memory of the boy walking, then flying high in the air, his whole body going straight up and then down while his legs flew out of sight. Then hitting that smoking hole like a sack of gravel dropped out of the back of a truck bed. He doubted this man would want to hear a story like that. Instead, he looked at his hands and wiped them on his pants. He tugged at his collar, trying to cool off. He wondered why they built this car with such a low roof and the doors far too close. He reached over and rolled one window down and closed his eyes and let the breeze flutter against his face. He shivered despite the heat. The sheen of sweat on his face and neck cooled in the air. He breathed Jackson, Mississippi in, and he cleared his throat several times. Hey, you okay, man? The driver said. Hanson wiped his face and neck with the back of his hand and rubbed it against the seat. Can we stop for a minute? Sure thing, buddy. Let me find a spot real quick. Thanks. Hanson paused and looked at the driver's dashboard and saw an identification card displayed by the radio. He read the name, Mr. Fields. Don't mention it. Hey, what's your name? You can call me Thomas. Hanson. Hanson Blair. Good to meet you properly. Here's a place. When Thomas pulled to the curb and parked, Hanson noticed him shut the meter off. Thomas turned around and faced him. What's wrong? Hanson rubbed his eyes. It's so different here. I mean, being home, it's hard to explain. I guess it's all starting to sink in, that I'm actually out. I suppose that's normal after being gone for a while. Nobody shooting at you, nobody yelling at you, telling you what to do all the time. None of that. I don't doubt it, Thomas said. Hey, you need something to eat? Maybe coffee or something? I'm good. He listened to the people walk down the sidewalk next to him for a few moments, then took in a deep breath and let it out. Yeah, I'm good now. I just need to get home. You got it, Thomas said. Be there before you know it. Hanson just sat back and looked at the city as Thomas drove on. The advertisements on the billboards were different. He glanced up at one as they passed and felt himself catching Dodge fever when he saw the new model. The movies displayed at the theaters were unfamiliar to him, Rosemary's Baby and Bandolero, but most of what he saw was like what he remembered before he left. He was glad for that. As they pulled onto his street, Hanson looked for his house. They passed the Malcolms and the Jacksons and the Petersons, and then he saw his house at the corner. That's it at the end there, he said, pointing. Thomas pulled up to the small starter house Hanson's parents had lived in, ever since they got married 27 years prior. 
thanks, Hanson said. How much do I owe you? Thomas tapped his fingers on the wheel a couple of seconds, then reached over and reset the counter. Welcome home, soldier. Why did you do that? Thomas looked at him. I've been seeing how a few of y'all have been treated coming back. I had me a boy in Korea that didn't come back. Whichever way the world turns, I didn't want to make anyone willing to get killed feel like a loser in his own country. I'm sorry about your son. Hey, I'll see him again one day. You go on now, see your folks. Thanks, Thomas. Same to you, soldier. Go on and get out. Let me get your luggage. Hanson stood on the sidewalk, looking at his front porch. He saw movement behind the curtain next to the front door. Then the door opened, and his mother stepped out onto the porch, eyes wide. She slowly sat down on the porch steps, with her hands over her mouth, her face aching with joy. Hanson walked up to the steps, slipping the cover off his head, and crouched next to her. Hey, Mom. She looked up at him and smiled, her eyes wet, finding her voice. I thought for a minute that you were one of those men that only come with bad news. Why didn't you tell us? I wanted to surprise you. She laughed and wiped her eyes. Well, you sure did. Come on, let me help you up. Hanson helped his mother to her feet. As Thomas walked up with the luggage, Hanson turned to him and said, Thank you, Thomas. Don't mention it, he said, setting down the suitcase. I gotta get going. Take care now, okay? Sure, Hanson said. You too. Thomas went back to his cab and waved as he drove away. Hanson watched him go and then turned back to his mother when he heard the door open again. He looked now and said, I'm home, Dad. Hanson's father stood in the doorway, his expression the usual hardness, but his eyes showed something akin to relief. Hanson's mother stood by him. He seemed older. They both did. Welcome home, son, he said. Hanson shook his father's hand and then hugged his mother, grabbed his suitcase, and they all went inside. While his mother called family and friends, he went up to his bedroom, set his suitcase on the bed, and sat next to it. He looked around at all the things he left behind. Everything was exactly the same. The Model B-52 still unfinished on his desk. The high school track trophies on the top shelf of his bookcase. He pulled out his senior yearbook and opened it to the graduating class and found his picture. In the bathroom down the hall, he held it up to the mirror and compared his reflection to how he looked then. He saw other students in his class, other friends like Jack Godwin, Robert Forrester, Ted Michaels, and others. He wondered what they'd all been up to. Then he came upon another familiar face, Pete Jackson. He thought back to the last time they had spoke and then set the book on the bed and went into the kitchen. His mother was chatting on the phone, back to her animated self. He looked around and saw his father reading the mail. Dad, he said. His father looked up at him. Have you heard from Pete recently? His father sighed. He was killed two weeks ago. What? His father removed his glasses. We didn't tell you because we didn't want you to worry. You needed to be focused on surviving, not about your friend. I'm sorry. Hanson looked at him, blinking. How? What was he doing? His father put down the mail again. I don't know the details. We'll have to ask his parents. Killed in action, I heard. Oh, Hanson said. 
He turned away and leaned against the doorframe and looked out the front door to the porch. He thought back to when he and Pete had first met in kindergarten. He turned back to his father and said, He was going to be a dentist, but his father didn't seem to hear him, so he just stood there and looked out the window. After a while, his mother finally hung up on the phone and said, We're having a party for you tonight, Hanson, a welcome home party. Hanson turned from the doorway, his thoughts far off. What? A party, a party for you tonight. Won't that be nice? Oh, his mother took his hand. You just go relax, take a little nap, get your energy back. The trip must have zapped your strength. Hanson just nodded and shuffled back to his room. He shut the door and lay down on the bed. He stared at the solid white ceiling that replaced the olive green canopy he was used to. He rolled over and faced the wall and cried until he fell asleep. He woke to an explosion roaring in his ears and jerked himself up, his eyes wild. He grabbed for his pistol but only found a mattress and a pillow. Then he looked around and remembered where he was. It was dark now. He swung his legs over the side of the bed listening. Laughter. He peeked out the door. He saw Miss Maxine a few seconds before she moved out of sight. The talking was louder. Had the party already started? He made his way to the living room. Neighbors and friends were there, standing and talking. A few were picking through his mother's record collection. Several noticed him, and he felt hands on him, faces close. Too close. Hugs, slaps on the back, hot breath, and the occasional waft of cigarette smoke filling him. He eased through the congratulations and welcome backs and stepped into the kitchen. His mother was stirring something in a pot. Food covered the dinner table and the counter, all wrapped in various dishes and tinfoil. People were filling paper plates and cups. He looked at his mother. What are you making? He said. Turnip greens, your favorite. They're not quite ready yet. Want to go get something to eat? There's plenty here. Maybe in a little bit, he said. Betty's waiting for you. She is? Outside, on the porch. Hanson turned and went outside to the porch. Betty stood in the yard, her back to him, as she looked up at the evening sky. Hey, Betty, he said, standing behind her. She glanced at him without turning around. I'm glad you're back, she said. Did you hear about Pete? She nodded. I'm sorry, Hanson. I know you were good friends. Hanson frowned and nodded. He cleared his throat and said, I wrote you two or three times about us starting where we left off when I got back, but I guess they got lost. They didn't get lost, Betty said, turning around. She looked like how he remembered her. The only difference was the bulge of her belly. Hanson looked at it, then met her eyes again. She raised her left hand and showed him a wedding ring. Bill Wallace and I were married back in February. Hanson could only look at her. I'm sorry, Hanson. I didn't tell you because I didn't want to hurt you. The same thing with Pete. My mama and your mama got together and told me not to tell you about me and Bill and what happened to Pete. I'm happy for you, Hanson said. His jaw was hurting as he quenched his teeth. Hanson, please understand. I... I hope you're happy and I wish you the best. Now please leave. I'll see you later. Hanson. Good night, Betty. Hanson turned away and stomped up the porch steps. He threw open the door and went inside, slamming the door behind him. The guest turned at the sudden noise as he stormed towards his room. He shut himself inside and paced for a while. Then he turned off the light, 
took off his uniform, got into bed, and tried to sleep. After a while, he heard the doorknob on his door turn and the door squeak open slightly, kept his eyes shut, and the door closed. He tossed and turned and then finally found sleep. His slumber was marred by dreams, one after another, images of dead men and fire. Every time he would wake, he felt less rested than before. The next morning, he awoke to the sound of his dad opening his door. He sat up as his father stood in the doorway. When are you going to get a job? Hanson looked at him and then over to the open yearbook on the nightstand. All those familiar faces so alien and young. He looked at the model airplane and the trophies and the other testaments of memory. Then he looked at his father again. What happened here? He said. Today we have the author, Nicholas Smith, on the phone. It's good to have you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad we could work it out so we could talk. Yeah, your stories were fantastic. They both just added so much to today's episode. I guess I'm just kind of amazed by the depth of your creativity. So, well, thank you. I'm just glad you liked them. Yeah, so... Is there anything you do in particular to kind of get yourself in a creative mood, like when you're writing stories? Um, it, it just comes in waves. Uh, the, the thing about writing is that you just, some days, you know, you're, you're, you're pumped and you're, you know, you know exactly what you're going to put on the pages. And then other days, you know, you're sitting at a, you know, a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. You can't think of what, what to put down, but you you have to get something down, and that's what the editing process is for, is that, uh, you know, you can fix it later, but don't just stop writing uh, because you can't think of anything. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. You've got some interesting writing projects coming along, so you're working on a full-length book. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's uh, I, I work full time, and I'm I'm going through a uh, a kind of a job change, a, okay. uh, an internal job change. Uh, right now, they're they're training me up on uh, the the new responsibilities that I've got. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. So where where are you from and everything? Well, I've uh. I've lived in, in Brandon for, for the majority of my life. Um, I, I spent the first few years uh, in Jackson, and uh, okay. my, my parents, they, they, they got uh, some job changes, so we, we moved out of Jackson, moved into Brandon, and I've just kind of been there ever since. Okay, yeah, that's a nice little area of town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's growing a good bit, too. Oh yeah, they're doing they're doing a lot over there, opening some new businesses and things like that. Um, right. Yeah, so that's fantastic. Do you have any influences or anything like that? Uh, with with writing itself, um, uh, I've, there's a few influences that you know really opened up the magic to just creating creating stories. Uh, the ma- the first probably the biggest inspiration for me is a 
a writer named Larry Brown. He was a uh, in a stationed in Oxford. He was an, mm-hmm. he was a firefighter for for a good while, and then he was uh, one day he just decided, yeah. you know, I think I want to see if I can teach myself to write. So he he worked at it, and uh, it, it took him a while to get there, but he. He wrote for about ten years before he really broke through the through the training period, I suppose you'd call it. And uh, oh, he, yeah. he did once he started publishing, he did pretty well. And un, unfortunately, he, he passed away at a you know relatively young age, using his early fifties. And mm-hmm. uh, but uh, he was he's probably the biggest inspiration for me, just because uh, you know you don't have to have a a master's degree from a great big writing program or a university to to do this stuff. You know, anybody can sit down and as long as you're willing to put in the, the time to read and learn how to do it and just practice, uh, you know, you can you can make it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was a legend and still is. Um, yeah, and I, I do think, you know, that's, such a magic about Mississippi. I mean, folk music, writers, storytellers, anything of that sort, there's such a cultivation and a fostering of performances in the vein of that folk tradition. I agree. Right. Like, it's just in your spirit and keep at it and great things come of it. Well, I'm so glad that you could come and um, do this little interview. Oh yeah, it's uh, it, it's a it's a fun thing. It's um, the, these stories are. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way to put it. Um, we're in kind of a messy time right now, and it's mm-hmm. nice to just sit down and get a little bit of a some semblance of order in your life. And you know, for for me personally, uh, you know, doing this is a way to. Uh, achieve that goal yeah absolutely i know it's like there's so many benefits to storytelling and story listening that's for sure (laughs) well all right well i appreciate you don't be a stranger (laughs) i'll try not to (laughs) okay sounds good well would you look at that that concludes the very first episode of mississippi story i hope you enjoyed it as much as we all did making it And hey, if you did, drop us a note at Mississippi Story on Facebook or Instagram because we'd love to hear. Have a story yourself or a penchant for narration? Send us some info. Our email is mississippistory at gmail.com. That's M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I-S-T-O-R-Y at gmail.com. Now, take care. We'll see you next time.